listening to The Good Fight, where campus meets Christ. Greetings uh, to another episode. I'm excited to be here. We have the full cast and crew, so we'll just go around again in case you forgot our names. I'm Timothy Kinneman. I'm Tina Liu. I'm Grace Lita Gonzalez. I'm Faven Nagusi. I'm Didi. Like you saying, in case they forgot our names, it just made me laugh on the inside. <laughs> oh. Well, you know. Wait, Didi, are you just being a rebel and like only giving your first name? Oh, Didi Moffat. It's weird saying my last name. I don't know why. Hmm. Like, I just like to say my first name. That's fair. Do you, <laughs> do, you, do you dislike your last name or something? Or is it just not something you say often? Just not something I say often, but I should. Hmm. So, yeah. Now you know. Hi, I'm Miss Moffat. You can just start doing that. Get used to it. Just practice. Hi, I'm Miss Moffat. <laughs> Imagine we call each other by our last name. Miss Gonzalez? That would be h- hard, I think, to get used to. Mr. Kinnaman. <laughs> that one's an easy one, right? Yeah. Yeah. I prefer uh, Doctor. Oh! Mm, uh, okay. Dr. Cinnamon. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> Not there yet, though. Not there yet. Amen. Amen. You get there. Well, well, Tina, you did a really good summary last week. Indeed. Of books one through three. Chapters. Oh, chapters one through three. Would you be up for doing another one this, this time around? Four through seven? All right, Woo-hoo. let's do it. So this week we read chapters four through seven. Mm-hmm. Chapter four is called Turkish Delight. And last week we ended at Edmund walking into the wardrobe. So he's inside the world of Narnia and he meets the queen. And the queen sees that he is a son of Adam and decides to talk to him and give him a lot of Turkish delight. So he eats a lot of Turkish delight and tells the queen everything about his life. And the queens tell him, okay, so now you go back home and the next time you come here, please bring your three siblings. And you guys can come visit me at my nice castle. And Edmund's like, okay. And he agrees because he really wants more Turkish delight. Um, so Edmund bumps back, bumps into Lucy and together they will go back into the professor's house. And we have chapter five back on this side of the door. And Lucy tries telling her siblings, guys, we were in Narnia. Edmund was there too. But Edmund decides to not tell the truth and tell the siblings, oh, I was just playing along with Lucy. Narnia isn't real. So the other two siblings, Peter and Susan, are very concerned about Lucy. They're thinking, oh, Lucy must have gone mad. Mm-hmm. So they come back and they try talking to the professor. And they tell the professor, I think Lucy's mad. But the professor talks to them and they start doubting whether Lucy is actually mad or not. And then one day they're wandering around in the house and somehow end up in the wardrobe. And they all end up again in Narnia. And all the siblings realize, wow, this place is actually real. So chapter six is essentially them walking around in Narnia and they realize that Mr. Tumnus, the fawn from last week, his house is absolutely trashed and they don't know what's going on. So they walk around some more and we go into chapter seven where they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they spend a day with the beavers, which is the name of the chapter. Very good. Very good. Indeed. Does anyone have anything they want to start with? I know. Basically, you had some strong opinions last week. Yes, I'm a big fan of the chronological order here. Yes, no, I, I, uh, I will respect that. This Thank week. you. I appreciate that. Um, I have, I have something in that that first chapter. Oh, you do? Okay, go for it. It's go actually, it. it's the the version I'm looking at. It's like the very bottom of the first page of that chapter, 
where you kind of see a, a change in the witches uh, or the queen, you know, whichever you prefer, <laughs> the way she is interacting with Edmund, right? Um, it's like a, a realization she has that uh, she should be a little more deceptive uh, as opposed to being uh, confrontational. And uh, I thought that was interesting. You, what part of it stood out to you the most as, as something of note? I guess just the kind of the idea of evil uh, becoming manipulative uh, and and trying to appear good as opposed to just um, being evil. I mean, it's not this. I think this part, unsurprisingly, um, really reminded me of... Um, screw tape letters yes it did and what is that? so that's another book by c.s lewis and it's also a fiction it's a work of fiction and it's basically mm -hmm. these letters back and forth between two demons um one who is kind of um higher up if you will and the other one who's basically like a newbie wait Tim, is a, this a, what you were telling me about yes it, it oh, is okay, okay. it's a Continue. it's a desk worker and his nephew oh yeah, yeah yeah i think it's his, his nephew. nephew is like a field worker right so mm -hmm. you have like a someone a, a demon out in the field on earth trying to manipulate humans to do bad things and then you have kind of the desk office worker who's kind of higher up and is having this familial mm -hmm. relationship trying to give advice and stuff mm -hmm. and i think the part that reminded me the most of it was the fact that um, the uncle demon, if you will, in screw tape letters, he is very much directing the younger demon to like cater to the desires and wants yes. of humans and using those desires and wants, like manipulating them. Um, like I think one that one that stands out um, is actually even the desire for religion is one that's used, mm. or the desire for like or the the role of religion. Um, and so he takes this, this idea, I think at one point of like going to church, if I remember correctly and manipulating it to being like, um, uh, basically like appealing to one's pride about going to church, which is yeah. really interesting. And I think this is something very similar where we see the clearly the same like theme that C.S. Lewis is talking about with the white witch kind of realizing that, oh, instead of just striking down this boy right now. Um, let's manipulate, like, let's cater to his desires for what ends up being like power um, and manipulate them to achieve, you know, bad ends. It's mm. taking a, a good thing and making it a God thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, I have a question from this first chapter. Very, a very literary question. My question is, what does the Turkish delight represent? I was thinking about that. I think it represents some form of sinful desire because the Turkish delight to Edmund is something he really wants and he wants more of it. And even though he feels physically nauseous and he's physically revolted, he still wants more of it. And back in the real world, he's constantly thinking about this Turkish delight. And I think that is our relationship with sin. We know that it's bad and sometimes even feel that it's bad, but for some reason still want it yeah I, th I i think i i think i agree um with the like it being something he desires i think one line that stands out is like the queen when when she's asking what he wants he, she literally says what would you like best to eat um and i think that's very 
like it's very clearly appealing to his own like in christian terms fleshly desires but i think you could also think of it as like momentary desires yeah Mm -hmm. um and he even says like edmund was quite warm and quite comfortable after eating them and um like basically the more he ate more and more and more and at some point was like i don't want to stop even though he was full and at that point, C.S. Lewis sneaks in a really interesting line where he says, um, and Edmund never asked himself why the queen would be so inquisitive. And I think that's really mm-hmm. interesting of like, because Edmund was shoveling this like Turkish delight down his mouth, it was something that he thought would bring him comfort. And it definitely did bring momentary comfort. And by like focusing only on that, that like momentary, momentary desire really obstructed his view of the whole picture i think following that i think the main thing is that it didn't let him like inquire like what you said Mm -hmm. because i feel like it was a distraction it's like how you use things of the world to like distract you and it's like you end up not fulfilling your purpose because sometimes you know purpose isn't necessarily aligned with what might seem like the best thing to do in the natural you know what i'm saying sometimes you have to you know take the lower paying job to eventually reach where you're supposed to have the most impact sometimes you have to like go um a certain route that might not present as what is meant to happen in the natural to ultimately get to what god is asking you to do to like have the most impact on earth and overall fulfill his will and so for me it's like the turkish delight presented one a distraction from actually focusing on what is going on here and also it was something to stuff his fear so rather than Mm. confronting his fear it just Mm. like was him just like stuffing it down i felt like you know you know i love recording on sundays because you always hear your your sermon in the morning and then you like there's five of us now so one of us ought to be able to tie it every single week and that's it's right now right my sermon this morning was about pruning right how god prunes our lives and uh like that's exactly what my pastor talked a lot about was you know these things of the world that just distract us from being fruitful witnesses of god Mm -hmm. um and the idea of of pruning a tree a a fruit bearing tree is actually that the the branches that bear fruit will grow shoots and those shoots suck the energy right suck the the nutrients and the resources that would go towards good ripe Mm -hmm. fruit and instead it, it goes towards these these growing shoots and so pruning is getting rid of those shoots so that the fruit can grow. Mm. And that was one of the things my pastor talked about was, you know, pruning the distracting parts of our lives um, and how God does that so that we can have better fruit. I think the idea of like sucking energy or sucking time, it's a very um, apparent here as well, because just later on, um, there's almost a aspect of, luckiness of Edmund right because yes he was eating these Turkish delights but we find out very soon after that um like they're obviously magical Turkish delights and so anyone who eats them desires more of them and Mm -hmm. if they like were let they would eat them basically until they died like they'd kill themselves from it Mm -hmm. from over overeating um and so it's really interesting to like we can see one that very clear idea of it being like kind of sucking energy out of Edmund, right? Where if it weren't for the fact that the um, queen didn't offer him anymore, he would have just 
eaten himself to death. Yeah. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, that shows that's like a hint at grace, if you will, mm-hmm. in in Edmund's life. That yes. despite the fact that he was being sucked in by the White Witch, he like she didn't offer him anymore. And I would say this that that has broader themes of like in this book that we'll continue seeing of of goodness and sovereignty of someone other than the White Witch. <laughs> Is it? So you you're you're saying there's a sort of grace in that she doesn't give him more of what he desires? Yeah, and I don't think mm-hmm. that's something she is intentionally doing, right? Yes. Because it even says that um like but she did not offer him any more. Instead, she said to him, "Son of Adam, I should so much like to see your brother and your two sisters. Would you bring them to see me?" Right? So she's being manipulative of not offering him more. But right, his right. manipulation is ultimately beneficial i see it i see it less as grace and more of subservience to wickedness right like he would consume himself in this one evil deed to the point where he's just destroyed uh but instead um as a servant of the devil right which is i think the, the clear parallel we're supposed to see between the witch and reality instead of uh permitting him to kind of destroy himself she manipulates him into even worse evil oh 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 i should clarify i don't think the white witch is being grace like having grace on him i would say that like we'll see these themes later on but i think there is another good presence Mm -hmm. that is the one who is like this is a display of that other good presence being in control Mm -hmm. and not Uh, allowing edmund to Mm. fall to his death because i was gonna say didn't the white witch just like not give him more because she needed him to go bring the yeah rest. yeah exactly yeah. exactly but you're so, saying like it's an mm-hmm. over yeah, yeah so exactly okay. the white witch is being manipulative but we can see that there is goodness even in her mani- mm. manipulation okay, okay. like mm-hmm. the goodness in her manipulation here is the fact that edmund isn't going to eat himself to death yeah and that's so fascinating grace alita because what we're seeing here from what you're saying is that she it seems as though she is in control of what is happening when in reality that might not be the case. Mm, And in that fact, there is grace for Edmund Mm. that the fact that she's not actually the one in control of his death or of whatever, of what, whatever plan she is um, hatching up for him and his siblings. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a perfect way of saying it. Yeah. Okay. I see that now. Yeah, that's good. Same. (laughs) That's really interesting. And I think it leads to the broader question of how we can fight this sin and this uh, evil desire in the first place. And I think the book provides another hint of how we can fight that. So what I found really interesting in this passage is before the queen changes her attitude, she says, okay, but he is only one and he is easily dealt with. So it seems like one of Edmund's weakness is because he is alone. But later on, when they when all the kids arrive at the beaver's house or before they arrive at the beaver's house they're just exploring and they're kind of cautious and hesitant because it's a new world no one knows if the animals out there are good or bad peter at some point says well if all of us stick together we will be okay Mm. and there is that contrast between being alone and being together i like that like the susceptibility of being alone yeah yeah I think we'll continue to see that grow and expand as we keep reading. Mm-hmm. So my, my next thing, unless someone had anything to add, no? I was going to say, but then also, how do we 
I think there's a susceptibility of being alone, but there's also like the inevitability of being alone. And so I'm wondering how can we take, you know, um, points from looking at Edmund and Lucy when they were alone in the forest and or in the woods and apply that like as Christians, like how, because I'm imagining like, you know, Edmund was in the midst of fear in that moment. How could he have like let the truth or of God or, you know, how can we let the truth of God overcome our fear in instances where it may present that we're alone? Because as Christians, there are moments where we have to fight, I feel like, battles on our own. So I'm wondering about that. You know, that is that is a good question. And I think it's helpful to look at the experiences of both Lucy and Edmund while they were in the forest um, separately. So Lucy goes to uh, Mr. Tumnus. And he is with the white queen or the witch. Um, and then we see that when they finally meet up to go back to their home and Lucy is speaking to Edmund. Um, I can't really find the chapter, but C.S. Lewis notes she as he was speaking to her, she did not realize how horrible and devilish he looks. Mm. And. That's interesting how his encounter with the queen already impacted the way, the kind of behavior or just energy he is exuding. Um, and it's, it's the, the, his attitude and his behavior is all affected by his encounter with the queen. Whereas you see Lucy is joyous and bubblish and she had a good time with Mr. Tumnus. Mm. Um, and she hasn't been associated with evil in that forest where as he was associated with evil and they both have different kinds of attitudes and um, are exuding different kinds of behaviors. And I think when we're, I guess to relate this to your question, when we're um, alone in the wilderness and how can we kind of uh, be strong in our faith in God, I think being like Lucy and having the willingness to serve the good um, is surely like one way um, that shows our faith in God or it's one way that we are stepping into that faith in God when we are actively choosing to associate with the good rather than being Edmund and associating with evil. Yeah, Faven, that was so good. <laughs> that was like mm -hmm. spoke so much truth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe another part also is... Um, like the fact that that we aren't alone ever mm -hmm. um right like even when we're we're not with other people um like as christians we have the holy spirit indwelled within us mm -hmm. and i think that speaks to this idea of presence right because um like because the holy spirit doesn't have a physical embodiment here on earth um i think it's easy to not be present with the holy spirit mm -hmm. even though he is present mm -hmm. and so um i think we can kind of see that in the attitude as as faven was saying of of lucy and edmund right where lucy from the very beginning we see her like self-sacrifice versus with edmund we see his clear like giving in to his own desires um i think there's even like when they go back um to the other side of the the wardrobe or right before i think um like Edmund 
or C.S. Lewis writes, Edmund was already feeling uncomfortable from having eaten too many sweets. And when he heard that the lady he had made friends with was dangerous, was a dangerous witch, he felt even more uncomfortable. But he still wanted to taste that Turkish delight again more than he wanted anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that speaks to, like, more than he wanted anything else, pushing away anything else, versus one of the first things Lucy said when she walked in. Like, it, I think it says that she's she's worried or she's scared. Um, but she was inquisitive and mm. she said to herself well if anything bad happens or if i see anything bad i can always turn back um and so obviously we don't see a direct appealing to the holy spirit here right there isn't a lucy saying ah but i have god on my side right um so we don't see it quite as explicitly but i do think we see it implicitly where lucy's not caving to her own desires i think i would say um that probably reflects her attitude towards towards like god in her life which we will see later on like lucy is a great representation of someone who who is seeking for a lot or a lot of no aslan um mixing my books here uh, or stories um versus like edmund caving to his own desires and not really being aware or um seeking anything else which i would say is also like pushing the presence of the holy spirit away i do think in the book there is a moment where aslan or symbolic of the holy spirit is explicitly mentioned and that's in chapter seven the day with the beavers when Can we hold off on that are we holding off oh yeah okay. no that's like, like i really want to talk about okay. that paragraph but like that's tim's like we could spend a whole episode on this yeah no that oh i love that paragraph but yeah we'll we'll get there we'll get there but you know i know how much grace alita loves the chronology thank you so we're gonna i thank you we're gonna thank move you, to chapter five now i Keep that uh, page mark because I'm going to ask you to read that paragraph when we get to it. But All right. Okay. Uh, moving to chapter five. I don't have any questions from this chapter, but I do have two comments to make. Um, I thought the, the references to real life um, were very interesting for me. So first, um, when, when Susan and Peter are talking to the pro- professor and he, um, he's kind of trying to, to reason out who, who, sh- who should they trust and they're kind of shocked. That he's like, well, you should trust Lucy. Mm-hmm. And so here's what he says. He says, um, there are only three possibilities. Either yes. your sister is telling lies or she is mad or she is telling the truth. You know, you know, she isn't, t- she doesn't tell lies. And it is obvious that she is not mad for the moment then. And unless any further evidence turns out, turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Yo, I love those lines. Continue. Mere Christianity. And I, logic. <laughs> this is um It's literally from Mere like he, he writes the same thing in Mere yeah, Christianity. Yeah. Which it's is like amazing. A moment, like a <laughs> and uh right, it's a I mean it's a common apologetics argument for mm-hmm. uh the reliability of the gospels, for you know, Jesus' claims to be God. Um, you know, it's either either he's this is something also that um if you read more than a carpenter by Josh McDowell, he talks about this as well. You know, it's just, you know, if Jesus, I think, Jesus he, is I think either, he stole that from C.S. Lewis. Probably. Yeah. C.S. Lewis well, wrote know. it in. Josh is also old, but I don't know which came out first. I don't know. I don't never mind actually. And it might precede both of them. Even. That's true. It's just like. C.S. Lewis just, definitely made it. It's just famous, everywhere. Though. Yes. So anyway, that was one thing I picked up on, right? Either Jesus is mad. He's lying or he's telling the truth. Um, well, he doesn't seem mad. He doesn't have the character to lie. So he must be telling the truth. And the, the next yeah. thing I picked up on, 
was just this this talk of schools right mm, the professor says yes. logic why don't they teach logic in your schools what do they teach them in those schools exactly and i thought i wondered if um if people had any thoughts on that actually why why do we think c.s lewis is drawing attention to kind of this critique of of education or the education system we read a lot of books about this in contemporary civilization for people that go to Columbia College, the college. Um, but I feel like it's the argument that is presented a lot of times with a lot of philosophers where they say schools are sort of like mass producing, like teaching us like what society needs us to learn to move forward in fulfilling what society needs. Um, and so I feel like they're not teaching us to think. It's like, you know, Kant argues like with what is enlightenment, it's like, us sort of like evolving from that stage of knowledge and i think it's it's the same thing like his argument is sort of like saying we're not thought we're not taught to think for ourselves we're not taught to see something and search the bible it's like i think there's a scripture about this where it says um you know where it encourages you to like if you see something go and like search the scripture about it like because even my uh, my pastor will always say this. It's like, don't take what I say as like Bible. Go to the Bible and like ensure that it is Bible. Like, and, you know, see for yourself, basically. And so I think his critic is basically just about, I feel like how right now there's like, people are sort of like learning what needs to be learned, but they're not like having to learn like how to actually think, how to be able to know those stuff like from like their heart, just like, how to be able to seek more knowledge, like those kind of stuff, like rather than just content, but also beyond content. That's what I'll say. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And you know what? I would even go further and say, you know, schools and I uh, forgive me because I'm generalizing uh, schools are not only teaching us not how to think, but like you said, Didi teaching us what needs to be taught, but I would even venture further and say, teaching us what they think needs to be thought, mm -hmm. taught, I mean, sorry, what they think needs to be taught. And in that way, school becomes a tool for mass indoctrination um, of, of students. Um, and we are not taught to critically think and assess things. Um, and uh, we shame people that don't think like us mm -hmm. um and i think schools have in my humble opinion have progressively um at least in the west um have restricted um critical important conversations that need to take place for fear that it might disrupt this indoctrination um in classrooms that is ha that is happening in classrooms Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of what someone, a student at Columbia said to me that really stood out to me. He was like, he's at, um, he's African-American and he was, we were speaking and he was just telling me like how he was excited about graduation because he was tired of having to like produce work that he felt the white man, quote unquote, wanted from him. And that really like stuck with me because I sort of reflected on that a bit through the week and I was like, do I feel like during my time at Columbia, I was just mostly producing what I felt like they wanted to hear from me? Or did I feel like I had a voice? I feel like I only developed a voice recently, like maybe during like my last semester, or last half of my semester. And honestly, that was through sort of like, you know, revelations from God about who I was and 
finding myself more and being like, this is what I want to say to the world. But at the same time, I can't deny that I still had the conscious mind of like, I still need to like make sure this falls within their criteria and um, sort of, I would say, addressing my audience. But in this way, I wasn't addressing my audience from an honest point of view. I was addressing my mm-hmm. audience from like a stifled point of view. But yeah, so all to say, yeah, I agree. I think the structure of schools really gives rise to that because you take a class and there is a grade and to get the grade, you know that there are things ABC that you have to do. And I think this is especially pronounced in high school. And I took the IB system and in the IB, they literally tell you when you write this essay, there are five things you need to consider Mm -hmm. criterions A to D. And I was tutoring a kid this morning. I realized that he was trying to find a way to do the bare minimum to just get the points. And even at school, that's often what you're taught. You're taught how to sort of cheat the system and do what the system wants instead of thinking for yourself. So I feel like at school, a lot of the time students aren't learning the material, but learning how to take the exam or how to just do the problem set. I wonder, too, how much of it is the the result of the system and how much of it is the result of the individuals within the system. So um, I got a lot of help, like tons and tons of help from a professor, um, not school help, like just personal help with other things from one of my professors um, freshman year in the fall for my Latin class. And, you know, he invited me to join uh, an extracurricular reading group for Latin that summer. And then um, I was interested in the research pro- pro- program that I'm in now. And he he gave me so much advice on how to, you know, how to create my application, how to, it, he he reached out to a couple of professors that he knew at a, a few institutions and had me set up meetings with them to get an idea of, of how to craft this proposal. And I asked him, I was very grateful. I said, you know, thank you so much for all the work you've done for me. Why, why me? Right? Like, why, why, why did, what did I do to deserve this? And he said, you were interested. Wow. Like that's, Mm -hmm. you know, so how much of it, and this isn't a question we need to answer or anyone needs to answer, but I think there is Mm -hmm. an element of almost what we were talking about with the Turkish delight where it's, it's our desire to do the least possible and get away with the best outcome. That is our desire. But when, when we're called to do more, right, when we're actually interested in what we're doing, as opposed to viewing it as some sort of imposed structure, then, you know, we actually delight in the work that we produce. And I think, I think there's, there's value and, and virtue in that. I think I'd also, this is going to bring it maybe, I don't know if it's a education in the religious context as well. I think Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to quote from, um, if any of you know Jonathan Tanaka, he's putting together a logic curriculum. So it's called Logic Made Accessible. The website is aristotelianlogic.com. I'm going to quote from it because the first lesson is why study logic. And the little blurb for the intro to this lesson says, Logic is all about argument and persuasion. It is a formal study of correct patterns of reasoning. Whenever we make a decision, pass a judgment, or express a position, we do do so in a fairly patterned fashion. Whether explicitly or implicitly, we start from a set of assumptions and beliefs about something, and we use them to arrive at some further belief. 
Um, and so I know we've, we've already kind of talked about how this section um, and the idea of like lies, madness, or telling the truth is very reflective of the scripture. And I think this actually continues on into the like section afterwards as well, when I think it is, let's see, um, Peter. Oh no, it's Susan who asks, but there was no time for Lucy to have gone like into the wardrobe. How in the world could this possibly be correct? Um, like, could she be telling the truth if this scientifically doesn't seem to make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, or at least doesn't fit like the normal part of the world or nature. Mm-hmm. And I think this really is C.S. Lewis addressing the like presupposition of anti-supernaturalism when yeah. it comes to the Gospels, right? Because you read stories about there being miracles um, mm-hmm. and Jesus going against, you know, the natural order of things with healing people. Um, and I think it's very easy for people to be like, well, this is like, I don't believe in miracles, ergo the Gospels are false. Um, and C.S. Lewis seems to be addressing that. And I think by introducing the section, by critiquing the lack of logic being taught, he is validating the logic of one, what he's what he says about um, liar, like Lucy being a liar, mad, or telling the truth. And then also validating what he says about um, like the presupposition that nature must conform to like their world, if you will, right? And And... I think that applies to the Gospels um, and I think, or actually just the entire Bible. And I really do think C.S. Lewis is creating a parallel and saying that if you were taught logic, like if you mm. um, studied logic, you would see that logic points to the truth of, yeah. of the Gospel mm-hmm. um, and that it's not in contradiction. And so I think that really does speak to the logical application, like, uh, ap- sorry, the application of logic to religious education as well. Yeah. And if you want more on his arguments against the presupposition of naturalism, you should read his book, Miracles, oh. which is just all about that. Very good book. I was also going to say, do I don't know, I was thinking about this recently, if we read the Bible like too simply, because I was talking with someone and we were talking about, oh, what's like our favorite stories in the Bible? And he mentioned that his was like the story of Noah's Ark, because it just seems so like incredible to him, like. like when he actually thinks about it it's just like wow and then I was like I feel like I've never actually really thought about like Noah's Ark like I've thought about it but like I haven't envisioned it in my mind Mm. and as I started to envision it in my mind I was like wow there's this Ark and it's like there was like a pair of each animal and Noah was in it and like I was actually like the story was coming to life and I was like damn like that's so crazy and so I would argue like following Grace Alita's point it's like do we think of the Bible to, too simply? And if we read the Bible from start to finish, actually seeing the wondrous like elements that, or the wondrous nature of God, even from saying, let there be light, and there was light, and we actually like tried to envision that, that when we got to the Gospels, it wouldn't seem so like out there to us. So, yeah. I'll be completely honest uh, moving forward. I did not find anything too interesting in chapter six to talk about. Does, does anyone have anything? I've I have some really great stuff for chapter seven, but chapter six is kind of short. Doesn't feel like a lot happens. I mean, I love when Edmund gets found out. Oh yeah, True. That, that was funny. That part's good. Actually, I oh, do yeah. have something. So when they run to to the drawer, drawing room, what is it? Cabinet. The wardrobe. The wardrobe. 
it's in the title i don't know why i missed it um and c.s lewis is describing the reaction their reactions right how they're feeling but he mentions nothing about lucy until they realize she was right mm. and as i was reading this um i was just thinking how must lucy feel right now when they're hiding in the wardrobe would she say hey like i think she kind of just accepted the fact that she's the only one that's going to know about this place and when they were in the wardrobe it seems well i can't say what she was thinking because she was lewis didn't um give her access give us access to her mind but it just seems like there was this kind of resignation and acceptance of the fact that only she had access to this place um and they weren't and it was until they got in um and they realized wow lucy's um magical land is actually real and they look at her and peter apologizes and she says of course i'll forgive you but i don't know as i was reading that part of chapter six i was thinking to myself how must lucy feel as they're hiding in the wardrobe right now she doesn't say anything it's like it was the exact same with me Faven. like i had lucy in my mind the entire time because literally all literally when i read this part i was like okay damn all peter said was by jove you're right and then he's like why i do believe we've got into lucy's wood after all and it's like they had so much to say before they had so much disbelief but in this moment they were like oh i guess we're here and i'm like so did it mean that there was some elements of them that had some sort of belief because they weren't like damn i can't believe we're here like it was just so natural and then the way lucy just said of course and forgave them and just the way she didn't even insist to lead until later on peter was like because i was like why is peter the one leading like lucy should be out there she's the one who always knew about this right but she just kept quiet and then later on peter was like lucy you should be the one to lead and i was just like everything will work out like you don't have to stress you know like sometimes it's like mm -hmm. the enemy will try to be like look like they're ignoring you or like all these stuff like oh no impact all these things and then it's like it happens later on so i was just getting so inspired by lucy in this chapter what i think was later mm -hmm. yeah i think another thing is like her silence really emphasizes when she does speak right mm. where she'd been really quiet she hadn't said anything and so when she does say like when peter does ask for her forgiveness i think peter says i apologize for not believing you he said i'm sorry um, he doesn't even say, will you forgive me? He literally says, will you shake hands? Um, which I guess is supposed to be the equivalent. I don't know. Mm -hmm. We'll take it. And Lucy <laughs> says, of course. Well, of course, said Lucy. And she did. And I also like how no one else apologized. Like yeah. Susan didn't apologize. The next thing Susan said is, and now said Susan, where do, or what do we do next? As if that just like cleared the air um and on the one hand that's a little strange right because you're like susan you also didn't believe her mm -hmm. um but i think on the other hand there's also the sense of like it emphasizes how little lucy made a deal of it you know right where she um like if lucy had been like told you like told you guys that i was right why didn't you believe me mm -hmm. It would have been, I think Susan probably would have, like you, you, we've seen her kind of carrying instinct before. Um, and so I think Susan probably, we would have seen Susan be more empathetic or maybe not empathetic, but more like emotional in that, in that moment towards Lucy. But the fact that Lucy's just like, of course, like no big deal. Glad you guys are here now. Mm -hmm. um, I think is really emphasizes her graciousness, which is really cool. And I think it's also a, a testament to Peter's character as well. Kind of his... Mm. uh his his humility right that he's willing to 
admit when he was yeah. wrong and and seek forgiveness for that yeah indeed well we're getting uh, pretty yeah, late we're getting so, at time do you want to so go on to the next we ha- we have to get to chapter seven because okay. there's so much okay. let's just oh. jump so to the, let's tina you want to read your tina, please section? read the paragraph following uh the beaver's first mention of aslan so this is kind of the the responses of each of them to hearing the name Aslan. Am I reading the entire paragraph? The yes. paragraph that starts. Okay, so the kids are with Mr. Beaver finally, uh, quite safe. Mr. Beaver says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or also lovely meaning too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. I so think good. That's, that's probably one of the best paragraphs in the whole book. It's great. Anyone want to dive into that? Uh, so I brought this up earlier last time because Rosalita was talking about the expense, implicit mentioning of the Holy Spirit. I think over here it's the explicit mentioning or more explicit mentioning of the Holy Spirit. It's just by invoking the name Aslan, all these children feel something and most of it is good. Uh, be it music or waking up in the morning and realizing it's the holiday. It's I think that feeling should be connected to the fact that we are not spiritually alone just by knowing or remembering that uh, Aslan or the embodiment of good exists or is with you. You just feel different and that might change your attitude as Faven mentioned. I Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I might actually, um, I think, disagree slightly on this interpretation. Sorry, Tina. Um, in the sense that I think I agree in the sense... Um, like in the idea of of this representing or like speaking to the power of Aslan, I'm not entirely sure if it would qualify as the Holy Spirit um, because it seems like it's invoking the natural like presence of of Aslan or rightful presence of Aslan or personal presence of Aslan. I don't know how to convey it properly in the sense that, and, and maybe I'll say that the reason why I feel like that so strongly is because Edmund is the first one to go and Edmund mm-hmm. felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Mm-hmm. And there's something in me, well, I wouldn't say something in me, but I don't know if that correlates well with who the Holy Spirit is inside of us. That's actually a question I was going to ask. Is Edmund's horror, his mysterious horror, is it a conviction of his wrongdoing or is it a natural aversion to god i was gonna say i remember that scripture that says you know 
our sins are what separate separate us from God. I wish I remember, like, if anyone remembers the first part, they can chip in. But I really love that scripture because it's like, God is not too far, something that, you know, he cannot hear us or he, he cannot be with us. It's our, it's our sins that separate us from him. And when I see that, I'm like, I, that's exactly what comes to mind because I'm like, I don't, I think it comes from just Edmund, like, just because of his sin or because of like, you know, everything so far that has happened with him in connection to Narnia. I feel like that just, if like, it makes him frightened by the presence of like the Holy Spirit, I would say, or, yeah. You know, that's such a really good question. And I was thinking about this as I was reading this, but I think the presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't only mean that it gives us good, feel good, you know, um, feelings or feel, feel good response. But I think part of, I think this leads me to think deeply about what good means because good it was for his, it seems to me, I genuinely think that was a conviction by God because it revealed to him his shortcomings and his sins. And ultimately, that is what was good for Edmund to feel that kind of horror. And good doesn't always mean that you have to feel comfortable and um, nostalgic or whatever as Lucy and the others were feeling. But for Edmund, that's what he needed at that time is to f- to, to, to feel the terribleness of God as, as badly as I put it. And I think C.S. Lewis, as we're reading this, he emphasizes the terribleness of Aslan, right? How he can look so dangerous and so big because he's a lion, but he's also good. Um, and, um, and in that way, I would say um, it, is a, it truly is a conviction because had Edmund felt as the others did, I think he would have been comfortable with what he was doing. Okay, I'm going to push back a little bit. Because push me, girl. I'm, I'm here on, in my little corner here Yes. Um, of not believing this is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so you guys can unite together. Um, Wait, quickly to chip in. I don't know if I think it's the Holy Spirit. I'm just going off of us mm, saying it's the okay. Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, me neither. Okay, okay. Um, well, I guess I'll defend my stance um, anyway against As you the should. thought. Um, being that... Uh, I think maybe a parallel that I'm seeing at least is looking at the four kids kind of like the disciples in a way um, that we see in the Gospels. And the thought being like there being that um, if you think about the Pharisees, they were turned off by Christ when he walked among them. Um, I think you can even say like the same thing nowadays in encounters with with who God is, I think there can be a natural aversion towards like seeing your sin. I think that's something we see with Edmund, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Vivian, what you were pointing at. Um, I think the question then is, I do think the Holy Spirit plays a role in in feeling convicted. I don't see Edmund feeling convicted here mm-hmm. because what does he do? He runs and he goes to the White Witch. And I would say mm. that if it's truly the Holy Spirit working within you, it would draw you closer to Christ, not farther away. Like the the nothing the Holy Spirit does will ever push you from God. Yes. And so the fact that Edmund turns and runs, I think is slightly suspicious to me. That being said, I do think it speaks to the Trinity as a whole, like the power of who 
um, or, or the true nature of who Aslan is. We'll see this later on when it's more explicitly talked about, um, like Aslan introducing himself and his nature. Um, because I do think like, like you were saying, Faven, there is a true horror that you can see when you are on the wrong, like when you are against Aslan. Um, and I think as, as Tina was mentioning to begin with, I do think it does speak to the more spiritual realm that's going on, going beyond kind of the physical interactions. Cause I think Tina, like a hundred percent spot on in bringing, like pointing this out as a place where we see the spiritual realm or the more like hidden realm coming to play. That's a great response, but what I would respond with a question is, does conviction or revelation of one's sin, does that automatically lead you towards God? Or could it lead you towards God in a roundabout way? Because I think it's also natural for conviction to make you want to go back to a safe place, your safe place, which is your sin. It should be Jesus. No, but you see... As I think your sin I think your sin tells you that sin is your safe place. Like I think if you're mm-hmm. taking the roundabout way, I don't think that God is like or the Holy Spirit yeah, you know God because it's the Trinity mm-hmm. is somehow unable to use Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit's convictions in you even if you go in a roundabout way, but I do think you departing from him that him in that moment is going mm-hmm. to be a, a, a sinful reaction. So I guess I do see mm-hmm. what you're saying. Yeah. Um in the sense that I do think that yeah, you could sin even if um like yeah you could sin as a result of the holy spirit's prompting in you um but that would be a reflection of the Mm -hmm. sin inside you so i guess i do see what you're saying that's a good point also to quickly add on is one thing my pastor said that really opened my eyes to like the truth and really helped me a lot was he said that when the holy spirit convicts you you shouldn't feel like guilt or like like you know like that's sort of like your flesh acting if you're really working with the holy spirit conviction comes with the path to restoration so it's like i've even heard preachers say like oh you know i'll wake up and it's like i felt in my heart god telling me like oh how you spoke to this person the other day wasn't right and i'll be like hmm you know what that's right and then i will like work to fix that you know what i'm saying so it's like conviction to me should be a path to restoration we should always be feeling like we're walking with god oh we made a mistake oh sorry god like how can i fix this and continue walking with him type of thing tim you've been silent awfully quiet i am i'm on the the grace alita camp actually um (gasps) for the for the reasons she's given as well as a literary one right like we're talking about edmund but edmund is not the only case presented right Mm -hmm. we see how all four of them react Mm -hmm. and what we Mm -hmm. we don't see is um Okay, I'll just say what we do see. We do see exemplifications of their character, right? So Peter, oh. the brave, the eagle, remember? This the eagle, is good. You know, so that it, it exemplifies his character. Um, same thing with with um, with Susan, right? You get kind of this very artistic description, right? This is her character is, is kind of artistic. What What was she associated with? The badger? Uh, Susan she was says, the bunny. Yeah, the bunny. Yeah. So I don't know. If, you know, people can draw that connection if they Susan want. Susan the gentle. But I was thinking that too, Tim. So continue. And and Lucy, right? The same thing. Um, kind of like this childlike awe mm. at, um, you know, at the the beauty of a holiday. 
Mm. And what you get with with Edmund then is also it's an exemplification of his character is kind of this this corruption, this evilness, a horror at what is uh, what he knows to be good. So I don't think it's it's conviction. I do think it is a natural aversion. Um, and as we will see, he is not stuck in in that natural aversion forever. Woo-hoo. Stay tuned. And that will be, I think my point is also reinforced more with the full story, but I don't want to mm. uh, give too many spoilers away. So we mm-hmm, won't make that mm-hmm, analysis. Mm-hmm. Tina, any other thoughts on, on this section? I'm still trying to figure out what exactly the distinction is and i'm not sure if Mm. the two camps are really that distinct i think there are overlaps Mm. but i'm not sure how to verbalize that binaries (laughs) how do we think about that wait i think that is a good point though right in the sense that obviously like the the trinity works as the trinity they are like there's they're three three being distinct but also of the same person right and so i think that's a good point yeah, it could be both. Could be could both be a aversion and a conviction. Do you think that someone? Well, I guess well, no. This gets too much into it. See, I think I like this as a good place. To yeah, end. I have one last thing, but we're not going to discuss it. I'm just going to put it out there as something for other people to think about, which is uh, compare the dinner scene at the very end of chapter seven with the kind of the imagery that you get of the Turkish delight. Um, I, th- I found that very interesting mm-hmm. to think yes, about. Yes, yes. That's, that's good. Uh, a little homework assignment here. Yeah, homework assignment. Or, you know, if you remember both sections. Uh, does someone want to try to to close out other than Grace Alita? Faven, do you know our social media handles? Um, thank you for listening to our podcast. And we encourage all of you to follow us on our social media. Uh, follow us on Instagram. It is the Good Fight Pod. At the Good Fight Pod. The Good Fight Pod. That's right. Um, and Facebook, also at the Good Fight Pod. Um, we have Twitter, but we don't use it as often. It's Good Fight Pod, though. Um, and don't hesitate to DM us and, or email us. Um, we would love to hear what you have to say. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Our email is witnessthegoodfight at gmail.com and if you email us we will all be very very happy Indeed. we'll throw a party it will make us very happy honestly so happy tina's boyfriend emailed us shout out this to him week, so shout out to yeah, chris shout out to him. he made us very happy we are made so a great excited week. <laughs> i did respond by the way tina oh he didn't tell me yet yeah. I, I put a lot of thought into that email okay we'll need the follow we'll need the the follow-up for for next week's episode Anyway, stay tuned. Stay tuned and uh, have a good week. Farewell. Bye. Bye. Bye.